Okay, let's pray, and uh, we'll feast on the word. Thank you, Jesus. We thank you for the means of grace that the Bible is. Lord, thank you that we can know who you are, what you care about, what your priorities are, because of the word as it's inspired by your spirit. Lord, we in the West are so quick to take it lightly that we have multiple copies of the Bible in this house, in this room there, while there are peoples on earth who don't yet have even portions of the scripture. Lord, you've given us the word and you've given us your spirit so we can know you. And so it's with that attitude of hunger and humility, uh, bowing down to the word, saying, Jesus, tell us who you are as we read about you and your ways. In Jesus' name, amen. For almost 2,000 years, Christians have been lawyering the Bible to try and figure out how love thy neighbor can mean hate thy neighbor, and how turn the other cheek can mean forget you, I'm buying space lasers. <laughs> Martin Luther King gets to call himself a Christian because he actually practiced loving his enemies. And Gandhi was so Christian, he was Hindu. But if you rejoice in revenge and torture and war, hey, that's why they call it the weekend. You cannot say you're a follower of the guy who explicitly said, love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. You see, Jesus lays on that hippie stuff pretty thick. He has lines like, do not repay evil with evil. And do not take revenge on someone who wrongs you. Really, it's in that book you hold up when you scream at people who don't believe like you do. And not to put too fine a point on it, but nonviolence is kind of Jesus' trademark, kind of his big thing. To not follow that part of it is like joining Greenpeace and hating whales. <laughs> this is Bill Maher, okay, comedian. It was about 2011, uh, and I cleaned up the citation since it's a kid-friendly service and it's church. Uh, thank you, Jesus. All right, an outsider's view on Christianity. Does anyone resonate with you? Okay, what about the insider? This is uh, Lisa Liu. Lisa Liu is on staff of InterVarsity. Her husband's a pastor. Here are the 10 reasons why she hates church. <laughs> Number one, parking is an ordeal. Number two, church gives me low blood sugar. I tend towards hypoglycemia, and no matter what time the service is, it always seems to cut into a mealtime. Number three, please don't make me stand and greet one another. <laughs> It's just funny because we've had a discussion about this on staff for seven years and I finally lost about a year ago. I don't know. <laughs> That's why you don't greet each other anymore. <clears throat> Four, I may or may not like the song choices today. Jenna, I thought they were awesome, by the way. Five, I hate going alone, but since I'm a pastor's wife, many of my Sunday mornings are spent solo. Oh. Six, our church picnic is always on the hottest day of the year. <laughs> I hate heat, and you have to bring your own food, so we're really just eating packed lunches next to one another in the park on a hot day. <laughs> Thanks, but I would rather save the trouble and sit at my own dinner table for lunch. How much one is two weeks? Okay, and then she says, those are the selfish reasons here, some of the more serious ones. So seven, eight, nine, and ten. Seven, she says, leaders let me down. Leaders let me down sometimes. Eight, she says, I can't believe why she'd say this. She says, sermons do not always challenge or interest me. Crazy. 
Nine, sometimes I bring up something that I'm passionate or concerned about and nothing changes. Mm. Okay, I see some nods. And number 10, quite often I feel simply overlooked and misunderstood. So what if the church has messed up? As Bill Maher, as Lisa Liu indicate, and countless others have probably said, and you probably thought it. Does God's word anticipate the church's imperfections and her weaknesses? Frankly, does God's word anticipate our sin? And if so, what does it suggest? What are we to do? Well, I want you to come with me back to first century Palestine and where we are as we're in kind of the northernmost part of Israel. We're at the southwest corner of Mount Hermon, okay? So the, on the foothills of Mount Hermon. And we are at a turning point in Jesus' ministry. He has, the, his miracles have gotten better and better. Actually, he's had more dramatic miracles happening. But his... Uh, confrontations with the spiritual elite, you know, with the Pharisees and Sadducees, they've gotten more intense. And now he's kind of withdrawing with his twelve and with his three. You know, the transfiguration, the time that Jesus is closed, get bleached white and they're in glory for a little bit. That happens with the three and it happens probably here on Mount Hermon. And this is the moment that we're in when Jesus is retreating with his three and his twelve and he's about to say something and then he's about to start his trek down back to Jerusalem. This is kind of the northernmost point geographically Jesus is. And he's about to trek down to Jerusalem, face headed towards what he knows will be the climax of his ministry. So there's a moment of sobriety here. And there's a moment of perhaps some soul searching for Jesus. And there's a moment of, um, well, let me just bring you to that moment. To bring you to that moment, let's turn to Matthew 16. Okay, it's Matthew 16, verses 13 to 23. But that's our setting today. As I've just described it. Matthew 16. And actually, I'll, I'll just go line by line as we go through this. We're going to go 13 to 23. So just follow me as I pause between every verse and share a little bit. Now, when Jesus came to the district of Caesarea Philippi, this is where I'm speaking of, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Now, we don't know. Is Jesus having a moment of... You know, is there a sad moment for Jesus, just wondering how effective his ministry has been? Or is he just being the consummate teacher, the consummate discipler by asking questions? We don't know. I look forward to asking Jesus that question when I see him in heaven. But at any rate, he asked that question. Who do they say that I am? And they said, this is the 12, some say you're John the Baptist, but he just was recently beheaded. So some people think Jesus has come back to, or John the Baptist has come back to life in Jesus. Others say Elijah, which would make sense, an Old Testament prophet who worked in some really miraculous ways. And others say uh, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Maybe Jeremiah was, you know, he was kind of a weeping prophet, so some of Jesus's, um, you know, Isaiah 53 indicates he's a man of sorrow, so maybe that's why people would say Jeremiah. Verse 15, but he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Notice that Peter isn't saying, ah, I think you might be Jesus, but it's really this overflowing, kind of effervescent worship of, You're the Christ. You're the Son of God. 
of living God. I like that part too. It says, you know, I've sensed life for you. I, I've sensed life coming from you, Jesus. You're the son of the living God. Like, you're immediate. You're near. This is awesome. This is real. We continue verse 17. Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, Simon, son of Jonah. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Does Jesus call him Simon Bar-Jonah just as a sign of affection? Kind of like when I'm playing around with Kelsey, I'll say, Mrs. Hubacher, please come here. <laughs> or my son has decided that his own name is Jaron David Hubacher Postal Truck. That's his full name. I don't know why, but it just did if you ask him. Isn't that right, Jamie? <laughs> so maybe Jesus is just being affectionate. Simon Bar-Jonah. Or maybe he is emphasizing his humanity. Simon Bar-Jonah. You know, you are, this is who you are, humanly speaking. But obviously it's the Spirit of God that has revealed to you that I am the Son of God. And Jesus continues. Verse 18. He's going to continue on this identity piece where Peter has perceived correctly Jesus' identity. Now Jesus is going to kind of impart identity to Peter even more. And I tell you, Peter, verse 18, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. When Jesus first invited Peter to walk with him, his name is Simon, Simon Barjah. He said, Simon, Come with me, I'm calling you Cephas, which is I'm calling you Peter, same thing. And so even then, I was just kind of like, okay, you know, okay, Jesus, I'll, I'll walk with this. But now Jesus is taking up another notch and saying, I'm, you know, that identity that I called you to and when I first called you, now I'm explaining to you what it is. You are Peter. You are the rock on which I will build this church. And there is a wordplay there because Peter, Cephas, and rock are so similar. In French, the exact same word, actually, Pierre, means rock and Peter. And he goes on in verse, actually, let me not leave yet. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now that's interesting. I will build my church. First, a couple of things that, uh, that strike me are, Jesus is saying, this is my church, right? Even though he's saying, Peter, I'm going to build this thing on you. It's still my church. It's also the first time in the New Testament we get the word church. And church simply, it, the, that word ecclesias, it just means people who are not at their home. Like people who are not at home are gathered publicly in a public place. By using this word in this way, <laughs> Jesus is kind of putting it in distinct relief from the synagogue. In other words, he's saying, I'm calling it out into a different organization. You know, we have the synagogue. We have this regular weekly meeting of Sabbath that happens at a synagogue. But I'm calling this something different. You called out once, you church. I'm calling you something different. So Jesus is just signaling there's some change in the air. And he says, the gates of hell will not prevail. The gates of Hades. And Hades, like the, the parallel word in the Old Testament is Sheol, which is not necessarily the hell of which Brian Marciani spoke last week. But it's just kind of this understanding of this underworld or this netherworld where people are until the judgment comes. But Jesus is saying, hey, the gates of Hades, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. Let's continue then in verse 19. And I will give, this is just incredible when you think about it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. 
And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loose in heaven. And perhaps this is how the ecclesia, the church, the called out ones, will be very different from the synagogue, in that there's God's really into some power sharing right now. He's really into some equipping. The Jewish listeners, these 12, would have understood, wow, God is now sharing with us judicial and legislative authority. God is sharing with us the authority to allow and to disallow. Okay, that's that binding and loosing. That's authority to allow and to disallow certain things. And they would understand that as an incredible gift of power shared with them. And verse 20 is kind of mysterious. I'll give my best. But it says, then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. I read that and I just go, why? You know, I've grown up in church. We're supposed to tell people about Jesus. Why would he say that? I'm not entirely sure, but some of the best guesses that people who study this a lot, they share that it was likely that Jesus, knowing the disciples' impatience, was just saying, hey, what I'm sharing with you now, as I'm sharing with you plainly that I'm, I'm the Christ, it's not quite time. You know, others can't handle it yet. You know, kind of let, let me decide how my PR goes here. Let me decide how I roll this out. And um, that's a likely explanation for why Jesus would tell him to hold on. Okay, let's continue. A few more verses. So from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. So he starts saying this with more frequency, more deliberateness. But this is probably in the same moment that this next little scene happens. 22, Peter took him aside, Peter being the one who just been conferred the special authority. He takes him aside and he begins to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. Strictly translated, it's God have mercy. No way. Right? No way, Jesus. No way. This shall never happen to you. But Jesus turns and he says to Peter, and the turning is actually to all. Since Peter was speaking on behalf of everyone, Peter turns and shares with all, and he says, Get behind me, Satan. Whoa, you are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Isn't this interesting? Peter, who was just called the rock, has now been called the stumbling block. Okay, and those are pretty intense words. The last time Jesus said things like that, it was after he was tempted, when he said, out of here, Satan. And now he is saying to Peter, get behind me, Satan, with that same sort of intensity, saying, Peter, what you are proposing is satanic in the sense that you're taking me away from my mission of suffering and service for others. Right, because that's what God has in mind. What God has in mind is suffering, in the service of others, you're taking away from that mission, and instead you're proposing this mission of what, what man thinks and how man thinks, which is typically control or comfort and service itself. And thus, Jesus is so stern with him. Jesus, excuse me, Peter has gone from rock rock that is well placed on which we can build the church to a rock that's in the way from what Jesus wants to do. And that happened in just, don't you notice, that was just 10 verses. Pretty quick. So has the church messed up? You bet it has. 
It's happened in about five seconds, you know? And ever since then, the church has been messing up. And my operating thesis today is that actually this dichotomy of having the things of God in mind versus having the things of man in mind is precisely how we can describe the last 2,000 years. Where the church has messed up is because we've had in mind the things of man, meaning comfort and control and the service of self versus the things of God, suffering in service of others. Another way that I might say it, because this is how Peter experienced it, he understood the message. He understood, Jesus, you are the Savior. He understood the message that was being given. Jesus is the rescuer. He is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. We evangelicals were really good on that. We have that down, right? But it's the method that we get messed up, just like Peter didn't get the method. Peter didn't get that the way... For the message to be revealed was through suffering in service of others. That's what Jesus was about to do. We evangelical Christians, we don't always get, we've got the message down, we don't always have the method, which is suffering in service for others. But thank God, at the head of the prevailing church is a patient God. At the head of this church that is destined to overcome Hades and the gates of hell, at the head of this church, is a God who is patient. At the head of the prevailing church is a patient God. Everyone say, patient God. At the head of the prevailing church is a very patient God. Biblical, we don't have to go too far. You know, we went five minutes into Peter's life to see that the church started to mess up. We look at the New Testament and we see a history of the church messing up. In fact, a great deal of Paul's letters, the epistles in the New Testament, are precisely aimed at the places where the church is messing up, right? Think of Galatians and Romans. What's Paul trying to correct? The way that man is thinking is thinking, hey, our religious adherence to the laws that we care about the most, right, for the Jews, that would be circumcision, that would be observance of the Sabbath, and it would be the food laws, that's what makes us holy. And Paul says, whoa, whoa, whoa. No, only by faith in Christ. Right? The way of man is, I do my religious thing. That's what makes me holy. But the way of God is faith in Christ alone. Because he's going to suffer for us in service to us. Okay? We fast forward to some of the other epistles. I think of Ephesians, Colossians, uh, Philippians. Paul um, is uh, very similarly. He's, he's um, <clears throat> he is uh, trying to correct the fact that people want to hold on to the religious laws instead of um, the purposes of God or, or God's desire to preserve unity in the body. Excuse me. A lot of those those uh, those epistles had to do with preserving unity in the body, and that was important then. And we fast forward to Revelation. Okay, if you have a red letter Bible, if you look at chapters two and three of Revelation, what color is your print? That's a lot of red, because it's Jesus himself evaluating seven churches in what is present-day Turkey. And five of those churches, he gives really direct rebukes to. He says, this is the way that you have in mind the things of man instead of the things of God. Ephesus, you've abandoned your first love. Pergamum, you tolerate sexual morality. Theatria, you tolerate sexual morality. Sardis, you have the reputation of being alive, but you're dead. And Laodicea, really similar to our situation in Western Christianity, they're very comfortable, uh, kind of um, socioeconomically, 
And he says to them, you are lukewarm. You're unaware of your need for God. These are the words of Jesus himself saying, this is how the church is messed up. Have any courage right now? <laughs> I'm going to get that, I promise. And, uh, you know, we could do two semesters of church history right now. I'm going to boil that down into about seven minutes. And here's how I'll do it, okay? Because then from these biblical times to now, about 2,000 years elapsed. But I want to frame them in terms of one of the church's great creeds. Okay, I want to share it. This, this is how we've kind of blown it over the last 2,000 years. The Nicene Creed. So the church had to get together in 325. In 325 AD, and just to put perspective on that, just think that's about 100 years more than America has been alive. You know, from the time of Jesus to AD 325, it's America plus 100. So I'm just saying, this is a pretty long time. But AD 325 rolls around, and there's this teacher in Alexandria, Egypt, his name is Arius, and he's saying, you know what? Jesus was created, and because Jesus was created, he's not equal with the Father. Well, that's, that's really problematic with the church. And so the church gets together as a council, and they say, let's figure this out. And the result is what we have is the Nicene Creed. I won't, we won't go through it today, uh, but maybe you're familiar with kind of Nicene Creed life is the Apostles' Creed. You know, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, the Lord, and Lord, who's conceived by the Virgin Maria. All that great stuff. But I would say, if there's four things that the Nicene Creed put forth, it's they are these four things. And just kind of what I'm about to do is I'm about to create a checklist or a rubric for us to use against the last 2,000 years. The church should be uh, holy. The church should be united. The church should be Catholic in the sense of universal. And the church should be apostolic. And in the sense of, I think of Paul. The church should be apostolic and we, have, we should have correct doctrine and we should be church planting. Okay, so those four things. So when you check church history in the last 2,000 years against those four things, how have we done? How unified are we? How holy are we? How Catholic are we? And again, I'll explain that. And how apostolic are we? And I would, you know, without having to go through a whole two semesters, I think we'd agree that on all four points, you know, all four big themes of the Nicene Creed, we're not doing so well, are we? Right? Is the church unified today? Gosh, we seem to be divided on every single issue, whether it's baptism or spiritual gifts or church government. We are not united. Are we holy? <laughs> hey, what's, I don't know the last time you had a conversation with someone who's not following Jesus and really has a beef against the church. What's the first thing they bring up historically? Man, what hypocrites because of what military campaigns of the Middle Ages? Crusades. Okay, that still comes up. I'm like, wow, you get to know your history. Great. All right, we have not been holy. We've not been morally pure. Uh, gosh, you know, and I think even most recently, you know, locally, uh, we had obviously the Catholic abuse, uh, the Catholic cover-up of the sexual abuse you know, that kind of spilled out in the early 2000s. We have what just happened in Mars Hill. Um, you know, a mega church goes down, and in both cases, it just seems like it's because we, I'm going to say we, because we have guilty, we have similar tendencies, but, um, you know, we have let the things of man be our concern rather than the things of God. <clears throat> have we been Catholic? In other words, have we been worldwide? Have we been, have we cared about the worldwide church? I think on this one we're doing better, but we're still very parochial, we're still very divided, we're still divided often according to nationality and whatnot. 
And lastly, apostolic. Do we have correct theology and are we sharing it with other people? Gosh, I think we've had a lot of heretical movements. And the fact is, gosh, as a Western church, we have been not good about sharing our resources with the church worldwide. But at the head of the prevailing church is a patient God. At the head of the prevailing church is a patient God. So where is our hope? I want to return to Peter. Okay, so we see Peter kind of blowing it. He says, you know, Jesus, I don't want you to go to the cross. Forget that. That's all Peter's trajectory. Ten chapters later in Matthew, Matthew 26, he blows it again. Right? He says, Jesus, I'll be with you forever, no matter what happens. You know, Jesus keeps predicting what's going to happen. I'll be with you. I won't deny you. And gosh, that same night, right, Peter just denies Jesus three times. But then we see John 21, and we see Peter restored by Jesus. And then we jump to Acts 2, 3, and 4. And what happens to Peter? He's bold. He shares boldly in Acts 2. In Acts 3, he prays for a beggar who's lame, who gets healed. Then in Acts 4, as he's hauled in front of the Sanhedrin, he's bold again. We see Jesus, or sorry, we see Peter. There's some growth here. There's some development. In Acts 10, Peter is used by the by the Holy Spirit to share this message with the Gentiles, right? To, to the, this, this new group of Christians that are coming in. And uh, he's used mightily by God for that. But we still see Peter in in transition, or in, um, sorry, we still, we still see Peter growing, because in Galatians 2, we have Paul rebuking Peter, because Peter is hanging out with the Jewish guys, kind of the cool kids on campus, the good lunch table to be at. And then these Jewish believers come and he distances himself from the Gentiles. And there's just a hypocrisy in that. So what my point is, is that there's this great arc of Peter's life. And we see him move from immaturity to maturity. So you get to his letters. I don't know the last time you read first or second Peter, but man, they're sharp, they're anointed, they're pointed. Peter is on fire, he's very clear. So what I would suggest to us today, has the church messed up? We sure have. But what I would suggest is, in the same way that Peter's life had an arc to it, and the same way that Peter's life was used by God, his journey was used by God, I would say God is doing the exact same thing with you and me collectively, the bride of Christ. At the head of the prevailing church is a patient God. At the very end, in Revelation 19, listen to what Jesus says about, or listen to what the Spirit says about the bride of Christ. Revelation 19, 7 and 8 says, For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. The bride has made herself ready. I would contend that over the course of history of the church, here we are in the, in the year 2000, the Holy Spirit is working with people like you and me, we vessels like us, to get us ready for marriage with Jesus. It's kind of a strange image for us. But Jesus is, is waiting 
for us, and he is working with us. And as Jesus was very patient with Peter through the whole process, so he is very patient with the church universal and getting us prepared, spotless, and pure. Even in my own lifetime, I'm very encouraged by a lot of the movements that we see happening in the church universal. I think of some that have happened. I think just the worship movement, right? The fact that, you know, even if, I just think of Gordon College and their chapel, and the fact that their chapel services, they have a modicum of worship that's really awesome. In other words, here's this very uh, ecumenical experience, but God has done something in these last 40 years such that it is normative now that the worship is passionate, worship is expressive, worship is free. That's a movement that God's done in their church. The prayer movement, you know, Renee is keeping that. The fact that the church universal realizes there's some things that are only going to happen by prayer. The charismatic movement, regardless of where you are and different things in the spirit, the fact is that, again, there is a desire to get into scripture and say, what does the scripture say about the person of the Holy Spirit? We want that. And not taking sides, not letting that become divisive. The charismatic movement is not, well, it is good, I'll say. The servant leadership movement, you know, the fact that, gosh, I think in the 80s, man, leaders of the church that are sinful and selfish get exposed, and where they're unrepentant, they get deposed. You know, God is cleaning house in the church. The church planting movement. I mean, gosh, down the street, we've got the Anglicans, guys with collars, they're planting churches, okay? <laughs> and, um, you know, the Baptists, they're sending a lot of cash up here and resources to plant churches. There's, from, you know, from Baptocostal to... Uh, Anglican and Anglo-Catholic, everyone realizes that the local church is the hope of the world. That's the spirit of God. These movements to make sure that the people of the church and churches are emotional health, healthy, excuse me, emotionally healthy. You know, the fact that we're not allowing churches to abuse people spiritually by manipulating them, that is a good thing. Business is mission. You know, this whole idea that we can't get into closed countries X, Y, and Z by sending someone who has a missionary hat on. But wouldn't it be great if we came in to serve a people for their common good, and because you have a profession or a vocation that lets you in that country, you are free to make disciples as well. That is the business of mission movement is being articulated so well, and it's wonderful. The so-called ancient future movement, right? This idea that things like the Nicene Creed are not just boring dead things. But there's a wedding of the liturgical, of the evangelical, which means we believe in the Bible, and of the charismatic, of the Holy Spirit, that is really wonderful. Some people call it the three-stream movement. Some people call it ancient future. But this idea that, hey, our, our, we can, our forefathers in the church have some good stuff that we don't want to just throw out the window because we don't think it's relevant. That's a good thing. So my conclusion there is just God the Father... Jesus the Son, the Holy Spirit, they're moving, they're, they are uh, purifying the church because the head of this tribulation church is a patient God. So what are we to do? Very clear we messed up, we started messing up with Peter, you know, right out the gate. 2,000 years, we've been blown it. Is there hope? You bet there is. As I said, God's moving in his church, he's renewing things, he's working wonderfully. But what do we do? What do we do today? And again, I'd say, let's just look to Peter and figure out what should we do. And I'm going to suggest four things that we can do, and I'll invite Jenna to come on back up and that, and then we'll respond. 
The first thing is, like Peter did when he blew it in Matthew 26. Yeah, sure, come on. That wasn't clear. I'll be more clear. I feel better if you come up here. I feel a little lonely. Actually, man, he does cool things with noise on there. Yeah, pads and things. Yeah, let's 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 um let me yeah, let's touch some hard strings now, okay? <laughs> let's manipulate some people's friction. <laughs> okay, so Peter messes up in Matthew 26, but what does he do when he realizes that for the third time he denied Jesus? How did he respond? He he wept. Let's weep, you and me. I'm just saying, where well, we've blown it, or we have been guilty of the ways that the church has messed up, we weep over our sin. We say, Lord, forgive us, right? And we just invite God. And um, just, you know, this is a conversation that I think Brian and I, and the staff and the A-team, you know, we have continually as the harbor. We just say, Jesus, where are we? Where do we have the things of man in mind versus the things of God? Where do we have control and comfort in service of selves in our minds over suffering for the sake of others? That's the key litmus test here. And so it's a tension we live in all the time, right? We're, we, we, we're running an organization, we're planting a church, but we're a part of the kingdom. And we always want to be in touch with the kingdom way of doing things. So we weep. The second thing is, and again, the, the cue here being from Peter and John 21, is we let Jesus restore us. Okay, we let Jesus restore us. Jesus restored Peter by walking him through that his sins. Like, hey, do you love me? Feed my sheep. Do you love me? Then come back into this life of surrender in service for others. So we let Jesus restore us. That's the second thing. And the third thing, I think this is really big for us. Again, this church, because we're demographic, skewing younger. I want to say this one's probably the key, and that is that we don't shy away from the mission. We stay on mission. What I see too much of happening is we, we wring our hands and, oh, you know, ooh, we've blown it. You know, the media just, just assaults the church. You know, that, that mayor, um, the comedian I quoted, you know, he's, he's just, he's vicious all the time against the church. If you, if you get him on YouTube, he's always railing against the church. It's really funny at times, but, it, you know, in your spirit, it's also a bit discouraging. And, of course, that's just what the world is doing right now. They're railing against the church. Now, Revelation has told us that was going to happen, so it's not like a, a new thing. When that happens, we don't shy away from the mission that God has given us. When we see Peter in Acts 3 and Acts 4, it's, Peter says, There is no other name under heaven that men are given by which we are saved. So we don't fudge on that one. There is no other name under heaven by which we are saved but the name of Jesus. Now, how we present and how we... How we present ourselves in the public square matters, but we don't have to give on that one. We should still be bold in our loyalty to the gospel as the unique truth. I'm reminded of this actually regularly in our home. We have Elizabeth Gilman, as you know, is, is uh, in India. And from that move, Kelsey inherited some of her furniture. So we have some Elizabeth Gilman furniture around the house. But every time I see a piece of Elizabeth Gilman's furniture, I'm just reminded of the fact that here's a woman who laid down everything. She had a boat. She let go of her boat. You know? I mean, as the joke goes, what, what, you know, what's the best boat? The best boat is a friend's boat. I'm sad. I don't have a friend who has a boat anymore. You know, I, I, I want to rent the boat. Anyways, <laughs> she... She gave that up so she could go to India. And I'm reminded constantly of the fact that she didn't give up on the mission. 
And lastly, we allow correction along the way. Paul corrected Peter. You know, Peter was a mighty apostle, but Paul corrected him and said, your hypocrisy about preferring the Jew believers, the Jewish believers to the Gentile believers, that's not right. We are one now, okay? So we weep, we let Jesus restore, we stay on mission for sure, and we allow correction along the way. Even if it's from comedians who are destroying us you know, on their shows, we allow the correction. You know, Mayor has a point, or Mar, I think is how he likes to be called. Mar has a point. We're, hip- we're hypocrites if we are pro-violence, but um, and out of the same mouth say we love Jesus. You know? We need to get checked. Let me just close with from First Peter, because Peter got so worked through, he had a great picture of the church. You've heard this before, but this is how Peter describes the church. First Peter 2, he says, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness to his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you receive mercy. This is what he says. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, okay? We are on a journey here. To abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. So when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. The prevailing church, we have a patient God. He's patient with us. What does Peter say our job, we, our job is? We want to do good. We want to be honorable in the public square. But we also have a sense of God's calling on the church. He loves his church. Okay, so we don't have to be hand-wringing about that. Let's stand. I'm going to invite our prayer team to come forward. And I want to call two, two groups of folks to come and get prayer. One is, if you are a perpetrator of spiritual abuse, if you find yourself... I am guilty. I've been a part of the church messing up. That's me. You know, I've misrepresented. For me, I, I think a lot of work scenarios come through. When I taught at New North High School, I think of several times when I did not represent Jesus to the church well to my colleagues. So I was either so annoyed or frustrated or discouraged. But if you're a perpetrator of the church messing up, sorry, why don't you come up? But <laughs> just, but if, if there's a specific thing coming to mind, come and just invite Jesus to restore you. And secondly, if you find yourself particularly wounded, you know, it's like Lisa Liu, that list of 10, the university gal, if you find yourself particularly wounded by this church or church in general, gosh, let us pray for you, right? Because Jesus wants to heal. He wants to cleanse. Hope you all enjoy your air conditioned service today. <laughs> Let's invite the Holy Spirit to come. prevailing church, this church, capital C, that has been destined to overcome the gates of hell, we have a very patient Father. You've been patient with us over thousands of years, and we don't know how many more decades or centuries you will continue this patience before you close up history with the glorious coming of Jesus for his bride. But Lord, like Peter, we need some maturing. Like Peter, we need some instruction. Like Peter, we need some good discipleship from you, Jesus. The church worldwide needs some good discipleship from you. And so we ask you, Jesus, teach us 
Rabbi, disciple us. Jesus, school your church once again because we need you. We wanted to be in Beverly, in the North Shore, in New England, that though in the public square we are railed against by certain elements of the culture, that yet we can we can stand up and say, hey, these are the good deeds that are going on. We've been we've maintained honor with unbelievers. We have acted like Jesus. We have been nonviolent even. So Holy Spirit, bring the correction we need. Jesus, bring the rebuke, bring the restoration that we need. Bring it all. We love you. Jesus name. Amen. Amen. You join us as we worship together. Again, if you feel specifically a as a perpetrator or a wounded one in the church, please come. Our prayer folks are here and they want to pray with you.